0: and welcome to Traceability Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Edwards, and today we have Professor Jeffrey Thompson from the Romney Institute of Public Management at Brigham Young University. Go Cougars! And he is a co-author of one of my favorite books called The Zookeeper's Secret. And so I'm so thrilled to be able to have Jeff here with us today, to be able to talk about The Zookeeper's Secret and about careers and and finding uh, career happiness in general. So thank you for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Tracy.
0: So typically how we start out is give us a little background on how you got started in your career and what that looked like for you.
1: Sure. Happy to share that. I actually, where I am in my career right now is kind of a product of an autobiographical journey, Uh, the research I do is kind of trying to figure myself out. But like many young people, I struggled to identify my path. I, I got a degree in Japanese after considering many degrees and thought I would have a a career in international diplomacy or international business. I looked at government work and tried an internship. I did an MBA and I actually had a corporate job for a couple of years that provided me a lot of great experiences and left me completely miserable at the same time. I worked in a corporate headquarters where people around me were very energized, but I felt just numb. I could not pour my heart into that organization. I couldn't get excited about you know, patting the bottom line. And I thought, something's wrong with me here because everyone else seems to be happy and I just feel adrift. And at this point, you know, I'm in, in my mid-20s. So <laughs> like with many mid-20s, I I thought, well, the qu- the clock is ticking and, you know, I should have this all figured out by now. Why don't I know the purpose of my life yet? I went back to school and took a couple of courses that kind of changed my whole perspective. I studied organizational behavior and business ethics, and those courses helped me gain a vocabulary to explain what was happening to me at my corporate job which involved a, a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose. I also started to recognize that there were a lot of ethical challenges in the culture of that organization, um, nepotism, sexual harassment, a lack of transparency, and it was so liberating to me to have concepts to make sense of that experience. So I headed off to get a PhD because I was so fascinated to understand this that I wanted to teach other students how to prepare uh, for corporate life and to be successful there. But as a PhD student, again, I wandered trying to figure out what I was meant to study and what I ought to do. And I was pulled in a lot of different directions. I almost quit a couple of times because it was so hard. And I finally decided I need to make sense of me. And so my research turned... Toward motivation and understanding what makes people feel a sense of purpose in the work that they do. It's not quite as as simple and tidily packed as I've just described it. A lot of wandering and a lot of confusion, but I've reached a point now where I've finally kind of figured out what I have to say to the world and feel like I have found my calling. I am doing. I'm, I'm teaching students who are preparing for careers in public administration. So they're heading toward the nonprofit world or the government world, very meaningful work. And I just can't picture myself anywhere else that would be a a better use of the the gifts I have and the opportunities that that I am grateful that came my way.
0: Well, that is fantastic to be able to feel that. I know so many of us sort of struggle with finding that meaning and, and that purpose. And I certainly have in my own career. I, I know that I sort of fell into a career unexpectedly. It probably didn't even exist when I really was graduating, and I had no idea what it was that I wanted to do. So a couple of questions for you there. First is, is maybe I've been reading a lot lately about the concept of generalist versus specialist. Do you think there's anything sort of to the, the whole point of why some of us struggle is because we're maybe being asked to specialize a little too too soon or that maybe just some of the things that we could special in, specialize in maybe aren't opening up to us yet?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Tracy. And I'd actually like to, to rewind a little bit. You talked about how you kind of are in a position that you never could have predicted. That's so common. I, I present this material to groups all the time. You know, I've talked to thousands of people. And, and one of my, the questions I always ask in my sessions is, how many of you knew you were going to be doing the work you're doing right now? And it's probably less than 5% who raised their hands. People um, don't generally know where they're headed when they set out on the quest to find their calling. Life guides them. And up uh, in surprise, so that that doesn't surprise me at all that you have a sense of surprise in your work. To the question about generalists versus specialists, one thing that I really try to highlight in my book is that a calling is not a a single destination. I've become very disenchanted with the notion that there's a perfect job for everyone. I don't buy that. I believe human beings are so multifaceted, so multi purposed that we will evolve through different stages in our life where our calling may express itself in different ways. And um, so if I can can get away with this, I I would kind of like to think everyone ought to be a little bit of a generalist and a little bit of a specialist as well. Over time, you're going to discover unique gifts that will specialize you for particular roles. But you also have to be agile and flexible enough to adjust to changes in your environment changes in your circumstances it might have you apply those skills in different ways than you ever thought you would just as as you are tracy in your career
0: that's a really good point kind of speaking from my own experience again having sort of landed in a career and finding myself at a place where i was not necessarily advancing but not necessarily feeling fulfilled either it, ended up being time for me to move on and try and take another path. And that path ended up not working out very well. And I think sometimes we get, well, certainly we're used to stability, we're used to security, we're used to perks and that kind of thing. And so it can be hard for us to move on. And then if we do move on, and it doesn't work out, what are some things we can do, whether it's just through continuing to explore our gifts or to um, be a little more fearless and, and resilient when those opportunities don't necessarily work out the way we hope they would.
1: The, the way I would respond to that is as, as you read my book, there are a lot of stories of, that involve discouragement and detours, uh, people who run into roadblocks. And I, I did as well in my career. And every time I hit a roadblock, my reaction was, Oh, I've done something wrong. I've gotten off the path, you know, clearly made a mistake because the path before me no longer makes sense and I would go to a place of, of despair. What I've learned in, in studying people who have a sense of calling is they have experienced those same same roadblocks, but in many cases, those roadblocks took them where they needed to be. Um, we talk in the book about Dr. Dale Hull. He's a Salt Lake obstetrician. That was his calling in life. He loved his work and was outstanding at it. He had an accident and in a moment found himself a quadriplegic, no longer able to practice. I, you know, I, I can't even begin to to empathize, to understand what it must be like to have everything taken from you in a moment like that yeah his calling was gone right he'd lost all of it. he could never deliver another baby again let alone all of the other things about his life that that had changed his story is a remarkable one he was able to uh, miraculously make more recovery than expected he now walks with a cane he still is unable to practice medicine uh, because he doesn't have the manual dexterity that requires but in the process of his recovery, he found so many people coming out of the woodwork saying, "Doctor Hull, how did you do this? How did you get better? You know, how did you make this improvement? Is there hope for my child? Is there hope for my spouse? Is there hope for me?" And he recognized in that moment that he had something to offer that he didn't appreciate before. Not only did he have a very specialized medical background, but he also now had an experience base that he could use to serve others, and he. Um, The reason I know him is he became one of my students as he was preparing to be uh, a director of the nonprofit organization he founded um, called NeuroWorks. It's in Salt Lake City. It's this amazing clinic that provides cutting edge, in some cases, um, kind of exploratory therapy for spinal cord injury victims. When you talk to Dr. Holnell, he has this sense of gratitude he, he, you know, I've heard him say, I would never wish what I went through on anyone, but I'm glad it happened to me because now I really know what I'm supposed to be doing. So when we think about these roadblocks that we run into, I, I have come to believe, and this is not just from Dr. Hull's experience or my own, but from own, that it is often in the worst things that happen in our lives that we find where we are best equipped to serve. It is sometimes the roadblocks that are the greatest blessing to propel us in a direction where we can uniquely um, share our gifts with people.
0: That's terrific. I, I very much agree with that. And I know that some of that sense of failure that I did have, I've been able to sort of channel that into some other opportunities and into the podcast and that kind of thing. So maybe if you could speak to... To some techniques, perhaps, for how we can sort of channel some of those experiences uh, that we're having and, and take a different uh, type of perspective with them, perhaps?
1: Certainly. So I'll pull out the formula from the book. The reason the book is called The Zookeeper's Secret is it's based on research that my co-author, Stuart Bunderson, and I did with the zoo pe- zookeeping profession. We interviewed many zookeepers and then we surveyed 1,300 zookeepers across the country. This group of people really taught us what a calling means. And, and just to kind of explain, you know, why, why study zookeepers, we wanted to find a group of people that we could study who had very little monetary reward in the work they were doing. They clearly are not doing it for the money. Who had very little opportunity for um, advancement or or sort of social notoriety, don't advance, they don't climb a ladder, and they don't get a lot of attention. But they are people who are incredibly passionate about the work they do. And despite the fact that they are underpaid and underrecognized, they have the highest levels of satisfaction in their work that I've seen anywhere as an organizational scholar. Uh, an amazing group of people. And so we we said, okay, these are the folks we want to study because we removed all of the noise, all of those incentives, and it's just all about the purpose. And as we talked to them, we asked this question, what are the ingredients of calling? And through our research, there were three themes that really came out. And this is, I'm finally getting around to answer your question. The three things that we emphasize in our book for people to focus on are first something we called hardwiring. Zookeepers are animal people and they recognize in themselves that they are wired, they are made to do certain things. Some some of them describe it as it's in my DNA. I have to work with animals. That hard wiring that comes with the calling. The second thing that they talk about is a duty to serve, an obligation to serve their animals. Now you might think, oh, a zookeeper job, that'd be really fun. You know, they get to play with the animals. That must be really you know, enjoyable. And and there are elements of that, but it's also, it's really hard work. It is stinky work. It is disgusting work in many ways. It's dangerous. You're out in the elements. You're up all hours of the night. And this is not fun work in the traditional sense of fun, but the keepers feel that they have to do it for the animals. It's really a matter of losing themselves for not another person in this case, another animal, but so, so a duty to serve is the second thing, finding a need that you can serve. And then the third thing that we heard from them, we ended up calling it destiny and it was something we didn't expect at all, but zookeepers almost to a person had a sense that life had guided them where they were supposed to be. They used words like it was magic, it was cosmic, it was luck, which sounds kind of like a, a religious narrative. It was for any of the, no, none of them talked about God, but they all had the sense that life had been good to them and led them where they needed to be. So the sense of destiny. So those, so when you back to your question, you know, what advice do you give? We start with those three things. And the first question is, how are you hardwired? What are your gifts? What are your talents? And the way that we explore that with our students is we send them back to childhood and say, tell me what you did when you were a kid and no one was telling you what you had to do. How did you play? Because the way you played revealed things about your natural dispositions, your natural talents that are probably still part of your life today, even though they may manifest differently. So were you a storyteller? Tracy, I'm guessing you were more of a storyteller as a, as a child, right? Or were you the kid who always put Legos together and it's all about spatial, you know, awareness um, were were you athletic? Were you competitive? Were you collaborative? Who you were as a kid probably says a lot about your hardwiring. So that's where we start. And then for the other two, you know, uh, in terms of the duty to serve, we ask, you know, what causes do you think about in your spare time? Worry about someone or something? What does that worry involve? Because all of us, I believe, feel drawn to help. Different types of people with different types of problems. So whereas the first question is kind of inward looking, what are my gifts? The second question is outward looking, what do you feel pulled to? And then the third question comes back to our discussion about the roadblocks. It, It is, okay, where has life led you? Where you are is probably a good clue about where you can find ways to serve using your gifts. So that's kind of, that's a, that's a really s- sort of a surface level answer to to your question. But in the book, we really try to dig down into the nitty gritty of helping people answer those three key questions about themselves. And I think that's where we get a sense of clarity, just like the zoo Zuc- for how those three elements come together in our lives.
0: I love that. And I certainly have spent a lot of my time trying to sort of understand some of those things about myself. And you're right and that some of that has led me to the podcast and to some of my recent uh, career change and educational in, endeavors and and that kind of thing i i think that especially in the times that we're in people can be wanting to find meaning wanting to find fulfillment unsure how to do that in times of uncertainty, although I would submit that everything is always uncertain, P- particularly now, um, what would would be some uh, advice or thoughts you would have around timing and when you're going to try and make jumps or what opportunities you're going to look for when and, and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, uncertainty. So when... When I start talking to people about calling, the first reaction is often this sort of defensive kind of like, well, that's that's a little bit la-la land. You know, that sounds too perfect, and I don't live in a perfect world. And you know, I have too much uncertainty. I can't relate to someone who has found their dream job. I completely agree with that skepticism, because that, I think, is not a legitimate way To look at a calling. I don't believe in dream jobs. And and I worry that many of many times when we talk about finding a professional calling, what people hear is a dream job. The zoo don't have a dream job. They have a hard, painful job that breaks their hearts when animals die. I mean, it's it's tough. It's a it's a calling, not because it's fun every day, it's a calling precisely because it demands a lot of you. Now, so with that said. In the midst of uncertainty, I think the way to look, of, look at it is a calling is not a destination. It's not an end point that you reach and then your story is over. A calling is a, a lifelong pursuit. And I found in my life and in some of the stories I tell in the book, people kind of weave in and out of a sense of calling based on where the uncertainties lead them. And there are times, I think, in all of our lives when we feel like, I am just not there. I'm not in the place right now where I'm doing my best work for the people I want to do them for. Um, Uncertainty can sometimes amplify those feelings. Uncertainty can also sometimes redirect us um, and get us where we need to be. I know there are a lot of people really suffering economically, mentally with COVID crisis. I do not relish that as, as, as anyone, you know, wouldn't, but I do think we will all come out of this having learned some things about ourselves. And I think some people will come out of this with a newfound resolve to say, okay, I've seen what life is like now when it's completely uncertain, maybe it's time for me to take a risk. That was a good time for me to leap. So uncertainty is both an enemy and a friend. I think in a way, I don't enjoy it while I'm in it, but the results can be great. And so I, I think the advice I give to people is, you know, when when you feel unsettled, you need to pay attention to that. I mean, not throw caution to the wind and, you know, forget that you have a mortgage and, you know, try to start a nonprofit from scratch. But if you're feeling unsettled, it's time at least to explore, to Take a class, to read a new book, to shadow someone on a job, to start reaching outward. You know the the whole "look before you leap" thing. There's a lot of wisdom to that. And so, if you're feeling unsettled, you don't need to leap right away, but at least start looking so that you don't get stuck in a paralysis of fear.
0: I very much uh, appreciate that and love the the plug for you know exploring what your options are, exploring. different paths and and that kind of thing.
1: This is kind of personal to me as I think about this tendency we have in uncertainty to kind of turn inward rather than outward. Um, this happened to me in my corporate job. I mean, no one had to tell me I was miserable. I knew it. I felt very unsettled. And my reaction, which I think is kind of a natural human reaction, was to turn inward. I kind of withdrew. Um, I, I did my job and I kind of put my head down and thought, I'm going to get through this and just kind of wait for the next good thing to come along. And that was the worst possible reaction I could have had. Looking back, if I was to go back in time and talk to myself, I would have said, okay, Jeff, you're miserable here. You're not happy. If you look around, there are probably other people here who are not happy as well. As long as you're here, is there someone else you can help? Is there something new you can learn that you can maybe make things better here? Can you extend outward rather than inward? And if I had done that, I I think a couple of things would have happened. First, maybe most importantly, I would have learned some things about my own gifts. I would have been expanding what I was capable of doing. Secondly, though, I think it would become apparent to other people what other things I was capable of doing. I think a faster way out of a bad position to do your very best at it and learn what you can learn than to sort of pull in and just kind of wait to be saved by the phone call. That's going to change your life. And so I fell right into that trap. And I think, and maybe it's in times of uncertainty, you know, that in a way it's terrible. We have all these restrictions, but maybe it's time to start exploring something new, or maybe it's time to reach out to people in a new way and try to help them in a new way and learn some things about ourselves in the process.
0: I appreciate that. And it actually um caused me to think of a, a point that you make about not every job is going to be bliss. There will be times. Um, as you said when studying the zookeepers, there were definitely times of difficulty. It was not all, you know, sunshine and roses. It's
1: true. Yeah.
0: We can have great jobs and we can find fulfillment and we can still Have trial and and difficulty. Maybe if you could just elaborate on where we we sort of fall into the trap of expecting bliss.
1: I think we um, unintentionally teach it to our young people. We tend to celebrate people who are famous for the important work they do and undervalue people who are hidden for the important but non-glamorous work they do. I try and I hope to inspire others to try to celebrate the nobility of labor wherever you see it. In my book, I try to use a lot of examples of custodians and food service workers. And and I guess if I could share a brief story, when the moment sure. I learned this was as a young professor i I was at another i was i'm at uh, i was at uh, Miami University of Ohio at the time, you know struggling to make my way and thinking a lot about my own reputation and my research and every day the custodian would come to my office it was this tiny little woman named Barb she was probably four foot five and just this bundle of energy and she'd come you know like a tornado into my office and clean things up and take the trash and she'd share a cheerful word and it was just day after day, I had this very brief interaction with her. And she kept, she started asking me, uh, Professor Thompson, is there anything special I can do for you? Do you need anything cleaned? And I thought, I'm not going to ask the janitor to do more work. You know, I, I don't want to make her do more of this work that I kind of saw as meaning menial. So I resisted that. I said, no, Barb, thanks. That's very nice of you. And she kept asking me. And I finally realized Maybe she really wants to, to help me more. And and so the next time she came into her office and came into my office, I said, hey, Barb, if you have a second, just could you tell me about your job? How, how do you feel about what you do? And she said, I am just so proud to be part of this university. I, I love it here. And I love that I'm I'm good at cleaning and I can make this place cleaner. And I just love feeling like I'm part of it. And I was so humbled. In that moment to recognize that her work day after day was an offering. It was an offering to me. And I had been undervaluing it. And that conversation changed me. It changed how I thought about my work. I, I think I was a little less self-absorbed with my own career and more recognizing I need to make an offering too. You know, if if the custodian is giving her heart to this place, why why am I not? Anyway, so I think where it starts is celebrating the fact that, that work itself is noble, that work that serves other people is a calling. And hopefully, expanding our narrative a little bit for young people to, to help them think about not just how, how fun and exciting their careers are going to be, but what sacrifices will be required. Because the sacrifices are actually what makes it meaningful meaningful work doesn't come cheap. If it was easy to do, we we couldn't stay committed to it.
0: That's a really good point. So as as we start to sort of wrap up today, any new research that you're that you're working on, uh, new books coming up?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I'm a long way from having a book, but uh, the new research that I'm super excited about, I had the opportunity to do a sabbatical last year in London. Um, my family, and this was a research sabbatical. And so uh, I began a project where I'm studying historic interpreters. So these are people who dress in period costume at historic sites and act the part of a historical figure um, interactively with the public, uh, there's no script; it's all improvisational. And uh, I, you know, I encountered these folks and thought, "Wow, that's kind of it's kind of goofy and it's kind of fun." Uh, but as I began talking with them, I recognized that these are very serious historians. They know their stuff. They have to not only know everything there's to know about their character, but also the events surrounding their character and the culture. And I, I am so impressed with their knowledge, but also their ability to just on the spot answer questions and interact with the public in such a positive way. So I've kind of fallen in love with historic interpreters. I've uh, now interviewed about 60 of them in the UK and Germany and the Netherlands and a whole bunch in the US, just wrapped up our colonial Williamsburg interviews. It's yet again, a profession of people that finds deep meaning in the work that they do. Um, And what I love about this research is they understand the power of story. I kind of expected them again to do their job because it was fun. I'm learning that historic interpreters have a sense that they are creating more justice in the world. Um, They tell these stories to challenge people's assumptions and to get them to appreciate difference and to appreciate what we can learn from history. I, I, Fascinating. So Tracy, I guess the takeaway is when you talk to people about what their work means to them, it is mm-hmm. so enriching. And I think we don't take advantage often enough of just asking people to tell that, tell us what their work means to them.
0: Oh, I love that. I will uh, certainly be doing more of that uh, as I talk to, to more people. Love the historic interpreters. My bachelor's degree is in history. Perfect. Never knew what to do with that history degree. I, I might have to look into historical oh, interpretation.
1: I have another career path for you, Tracy. I <laughs> you up with some people.
0: <laughs> Very cool. And you're teaching and you're um living the the professorial life here. So how can um folks get hold of you, whether through LinkedIn or BYU or What's the best way for folks to find you?
1: Yeah, um, so I'm I'm pretty easily found on the BYU website. I'm in the Marriott School uh, of Business and in the in the Romney Institute of Public Administration. Uh, public, uh, actually, it's changed our name. The Romney Institute of Public Service and Ethics within ah. the Marriott School. Uh, so you can look for me there. Um, if you're interested in the book, the book is available on Amazon. That's called The Zookeeper's Secret it is a, is a book written primarily with a a faith-based audience written for members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I think has pretty general applicability and uh, yes, I'm, I'm welcome to outreach. So look forward to it.
0: Awesome. Well, I in particular have loved the book so much and I have recommended it to many people. And uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, I hope you will take the time to check it out. And if anything that we have discussed today has resonated with you or you have found it particularly meaningful, shoot me an email at Tracy, T-R-A-C-I-E, at traceabilitypodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, Dr. Jeff Thompson, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate
1: it. Thank you, Tracy. It's been my pleasure.